my pleasure to be here with you guys. Uh, my name is Seba Vasquez. I'm a part of the Fellowships Network. I've been, um, Seba, can I time out for just a story? Oh, sure. I forgot to dismiss the kids. So oh, I thought just, they were going to stay. Just nursery, right? Oh, okay. Just nursery. Yeah. Just oh, nursery. Right. Okay. Very cool. Well, listen, um, it's my pleasure to be here. You know, I, I've been working at Fellowship Rouge Park the last few years, and we recently left that church plant within our network to help start a new church plant in the network. And, um, man, it's just a pleasure to fill in as Jared recovers from surgery. And if you look at him, he's right there recovering nicely. Um, I, this is not an injury from Jennifer talking his ear off. This is a recover from surgery. But it is, <laughs> no, I'm just joking. Everybody who knows her knows that she wouldn't do that, too. Um, Listen, uh, what a privilege it is to be here. Uh, we're going to talk about trust. And, and we've been in First Samuel as a church, and you were there last week, and you'll be there next week. And, and we're going to talk about uh, a story in the Bible about Israel demanding a king, but it's really a story of trust. And listen, I'm someone who grew up with some trust issues, um, not, not real serious ones, but it had mainly to do with my father's uh, really weird sense of humor. So he was a good man, he was a loving man, but he kind of had like a demented sense of humor in that when I was, a, remember, 10 years old, my father sent me an envelope, my brother and I, he was 12, I was 10. We had just come back from a trip to Argentina where we had to renew our passports to go to that trip. We had come back from that trip, and so um, in the month of April, uh, which you know contains April Fool's, my father sent a document to us that when we opened it said, you have been summoned to the court because the United States has decided not to renew your citizenship, which I didn't even know, like, that's not even a thing. And, um, and so we're going to deport you, but we're going to give you a chance to beg for why you should stay in the country. And so we received that around March, and um, the court date was for April. And so my, da my dad, as a 10-year-old and a 12-year-old, he, he told his son, you're going to have to dress up nice, wear your suit, and you're going to have to practice a speech of why we sh they should let you stay in the country. And, uh, and we're going to go to court. And so sure enough, the day came, he actually took us to court. We didn't know it was actually traffic court, but we went to court. And uh, the whole thing was almost like uh, ruined by the fact that my uncle was there trying to get out of a ticket. And he wasn't scheduled to be there. And I said, oh, dad, like Uncle Rudy's here. And my dad, quick on his feet, he was like, well, yes, he's here to testify on your behalf to make sure that you can stay in the country. And so, uh, you know, we get into the courtroom, and somehow my dad had talked the bailiff into, like, giving us this, um, this document. And so, you know, the bailiff came and gave my brother and I these official documents and these big sealed envelopes, and, and we were ready and practicing, you know, our speeches in our, in our little benches there with our suits on. And we opened up the document and it said, gotcha, April Fool's, uh, let's go to a baseball game. And so we spent the rest of the day, this is such a stupid thing, I don't know why he thought this would work out, but we immediately went to the baseball game in, in our suits, and I'm just watching uh, the Astros play, and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, and I'm looking around thinking, is this all a joke, is ICE going to get me, like are they going to still deport me, and, and I spent the rest of the time just nervous thinking, and in my head, in my 10-year-old head, I'm thinking, what is wrong with you to my dad, Right? He's and, a legend. Oh, he's a legend. And he's sitting there smug, you know, smiling because he pulled one over on his 10-year-old and 12-year-old sons. And, like, to this day, he's still got a pretty bad sense of humor. In April, I'm still a little bit gun-shy <laughs> opening up any emails from him or anything. In fact, you know, he's still alive, 75 years old. But the, the April after he passes, I'm, I'm going to be looking around and make sure that he's not, you know, just pulling a fast one on us. Um, 
So I had some trust issues when it comes to the month of April. I'm still a little bit jumpy in April. Um, and, and, and listen, some of us have trust issues because of things that other people have done to us, right? But honestly, that's not what we're going to talk about today. Sometimes we have trust issues because of who we are. And that's kind of the story that we're going to get into here in 1 Samuel. We're going to talk about Israel demanding a king, but actually how this whole story is not really about kings, it's not really about wicked sons, it's not about judges, it's not about um, you know, political systems or monarchies, it is about trust. And would the people of God trust God? And so let, let's look at uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8. We're going to read uh, 1 through 9, and then we're going to skip some verses and, and zoom on ahead to 10, uh, starting 17. So I'm just going to read this for you, and maybe you can follow along in your Bibles, or you can follow along on the screen. But here we go. We're going to start with um, Samuel, who was a judge, um, and we're going to talk about that in just a second. He was, he was, and you'll see by the story, he was the last judge. And, the, and it says in verse uh, 1, when Samuel became old, he made his son judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his secondborn, Abijah, they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in the ways, but turned aside after gain. They didn't walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to them, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to do, for they have not rejected you, Samuel, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. And I'll, I'll read you that warning a little bit later, but let's go to 1017. So, you know, Samuel warns them, and, and this is the ending result here. 1017 says, now Samuel called the people together of the Lord at Mizpah, and he said to the people of Israel, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses, and you have said to him, set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. And Samuel spells out exactly what this request really was. It was rejection of God. It was them saying, we just don't trust you, God, anymore. And, and verse 20, then Samuel brought all the tribes of the Israel near. And, and I'm sorry, I don't mean to keep interrupting, but check out the alternative. Look at who they decide to put their trust in, okay? Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near. The tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. Um, so there was kind of like this random system where they would pick someone randomly, and, and this particular tribe uh, was the one that was picked. And he brought the tribe of Benjamin nearby its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot, and Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, behold, this is God telling him, your man, the one you picked instead of me, 
the one that you think will, try, will guide you, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, long live the king. Oh, what a spectacle this was for so many reasons. And there's even some weird sarcasm there in the people's chant, long live the king, of a man who was hiding in the baggage, afraid to take this responsibility on. This is who they were trusting to lead him. And, and yet they still yelled. It showed the, how hardened their hearts really were. They still yelled, long live the king, after seeing, oh boy, maybe we made a mistake. So listen, um, it's important that you know a couple of things uh, from the background here so that it, it kind of makes sense to some of the observations and applications we're going to talk about later. I'm going to give you some observations that I see in the story, and then I'm going to try to flip those into applications for our life. But before we go there, there's just three themes that I want you to see that are in this text that if you don't know the history, maybe you might have missed them. And, and the first theme is like this idea of the judges. And so Samuel was the 15th judge, um, the last one, and it was a system that was kind of unique to Israel. That, in fact, that was part of the issue. This is a very unique system where instead of having a king who would then have a son who would take over, who would then have a son who would take over, and, son, and, and there was stability through this monarchy, um, God would just raise up different leaders from different tribes, and they would judge over Israel. And so these, these 15 judges weren't necessarily related. Uh, they were just people that God kind of brought up out of the people and said, now you're going to be a leader. Now you're going to be a leader. And, and listen, this was just kind of nerve-wracking for the nation because, you, you know, the whole system depended on God raising up a leader. And, and so that was one of these first issues that you have to understand, that they've had 15 of these already, and they're kind of tired of it. Um, and I don't, I don't think it's because the judges were actually bad judges. They actually did a much better job than, than kings would have done. If you read the, the scriptures, he says, look, I've, I've, I've freed you from these people who try to oppress you. I've delivered you from other kingdoms. I've, I've taken you out of Egypt. I mean, you could trust me. I've done everything right for you. And, and still, the system of judges was a little bit too unique for the people of Israel. They, they felt too awkward amongst the other nations. They, they, they wanted something else. So that, that's the first theme. You got to know the system of judges. The second theme here is like, it talks about these wicked sons. And, and this isn't the first time that actually happened. I don't know if you touched on it last time, but Eli's sons, the judge before Samuel, his sons were wicked too. And, and it's almost like um, God was kind of orchestrating things in such a way where you'd have a great leader and then wicked sons, great leader and wicked sons. And it's like he's trying to teach the people, hey, listen, just because one guy's a great leader doesn't mean his sons will be. And it's almost like he was conditioning them to not trust like a monarchy system where a king would have a son, and that son would take over. So it's even God gave them in their history opportunities to look at the fact that when you have a king, just because he's good doesn't mean his son will be good, and he's like training them not to trust in that system. Um, and despite that, what do the people ask for? The king, even though God's already shown them, hey, this, this doesn't work. This won't work the way you think it does. Look, even within our own judges, even with Eli, even with Samuel, their sons don't necessarily walk in their ways, right? The third theme that's kind of important, it's kind of slipped in there, is twice in the passages that we read, he mentions Egypt. Twice. This is a sore subject with God. Let me tell you, because he's the one that delivered them out of Egypt. 
he's the one that keeps reminding them, I brought you out of Egypt. And, and when he talks about Egypt, he's talking about the slavery that they were under in Egypt. And he said, I delivered you from there. It was me. It wasn't a king. It was me. I used Moses, but it was me. I delivered you from Egypt. And yet, you know what they did while they were in the wilderness? You know what the people started to do? They started to say, oh, it would have been better for us to just die in Egypt than be out here with you, trusting you, God. That's, that was the attitude of the people of Israel. And you know what? You know what's sad is that they never really shook that attitude. They always started thinking, oh, man, it just would have been better if we were back in captivity or if we were back doing things the way the world does things. I mean, they were always ungrateful for the deliverance that God had given them. They're always wanting to go back. They were always had this back to Egypt mentality, and, and I think God brings that up because he recognizes that's the impulse that's coming out here, that he's ready to give them a new judge, but they're demanding a king, and he's like, man, you guys, you guys just got this back to Egypt mentality. Man, you just want to go back to a system I freed you from. Oh, man, how, how, how frustrating that must have been for God, right? So, in the story, God gives them a king, and, and, and the person that he knows that they want in their hearts, you know, he doesn't just give them a king. What does this king look like? What is his physical description? Oh, man, he's like a head taller than everybody. In fact, it says right there, like even his shoulders... You know, no one even reached his shoulders. I mean, he is a king from typecasting, right? Like, if, if Hollywood was giving you a king, he would be the king that you want. He was a good-looking guy. There was no one that was his equal. And, and, and God, you know, kind of says, I know this is what you secretly want in your heart, so I'm going to give it to you. And later on, you'll see foreshadowing of it in, in Saul's early life where he's hiding in the baggage. And he wasn't as tall in his character as he was in his stature. Um... Later on, you'll see that in his life, too, that this, this big old grand person that you wanted isn't all that they were cracked up to be, right? So our slice of scripture here ends with this, this newly anointed king who is taller than everybody. But let me just give you a—I'm not going to put it on here. Let me just give you, though, um, the warning. Remember, it says, go ahead and warn the people what's going to happen if they have a king. So I'm just going to read this to you. It's just uh, 10 verses here or nine verses so I'm going to start in 8.10. It says, So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. Okay, just, just listen. Listen to this, okay? These will be the ways of the kings that will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them his chariots to be his horsemen to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and, and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest, and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and, and orchards and, and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards. And I know you're thinking like tenth. That's, that's better tax rate than I pay right now for sure. But, you're like, but this is not normal because the judges didn't do this. Do you understand? The judges didn't do this. It, it, he's saying uh, he'll take a tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourself. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. Man, Samuel is painting this picture, isn't he? Of like, look at what's going to happen if you follow through with your choice. 
you're going to get this king who's basically going to make you a slave. You're literally going to go back to Egypt with this guy. And when you cry out, man, this is some heavy scripture right here. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. We're going to talk about that. What does that mean? So, listen, it's a pretty messed up story. And again, the story is not about kings. It's not about judges. It's not about political systems. It's not about monarchies. It's not about taxes. It's not about slavery. It's about trust. So I just want you to read this whole story through that lens. Do these people trust God? Do we trust God? Is God trustworthy? Does God demand to be trusted? Uh, Let me give you some observations here. I have eight of them from the story, okay? My first observation is is one that's kind of obvious. Belonging to God makes you different than the world. Duh, right? And we talked about the uniqueness of this judge system. They were the only ones that had that system of government where God would raise up a new judge, and it was just made them completely different. Everything operated differently than the rest of the world. Let me give my second Wow, observation, and I say that sarcastically. Number two, being different in this world isn't always easy. It's kind of war on the people. You know, even though the system had delivered them from oppressors and from slavery and had gotten them exactly where they needed to be, just being different was hard. It was hard to be different than the world. It wore them down. Let me give you a third observation here. Having to trust God all the time is hard. Um, it's real hard. And and listen, we'll talk about this later, but having to trust anyone all the time is hard. Uh, But we see from this story that even though the system had worked out for them very well, having to continually trust God in every generation was hard. Uh, Here's the fourth one. But trusting God is better than trusting anything else or anyone else. And that was made clear through the warning that Samuel was giving, but it also was made clear through how the rest of Saul's life played out. Here's my fifth observation. People are willing to give up freedom for security. People are willing to give up freedom for security. Um, Because even though they would be giving up these freedoms, and even though Samuel warned them, look at all the things that will happen if you're a king... In their head, they're thinking, you know what, but the security of having a monarchy, of being able to predict who the next leader was, you know, I think that the people of Israel thought, at least we could game that system a little bit. Like, when we know who the next prince is going to be, we can train them. We can educate them. We can make allies with them. We can pick who we think the best heir will be, murder the one that we don't like. I mean, there was a way in their head that they could game the system. And that's why they traded this freedom they had in God for for something that was supposed to be security, but was really about them being able to put their hands on the steering wheel of their country, of their kingdom, and of their life. And they, they, they forfeited the, the freedom God offers for a little bit more of that security. Number six, God is willing to let his people screw up. Isn't that an amazing thing about God? I mean, I kind of wish that wasn't the truth, but like God is willing to let these people screw up. He doesn't force them to obey. He says, if that's what you want, I will give you what you want. Um, but just because he's willing 
to let us screw up. Let me just read you this next one, number seven. God is not willing to share his authority with anyone. He says, look, you can choose your own way, but just know you can't have it both ways. You can't be the boss and call me the boss at the same time. Uh, if you go back to that verse in 18 that I read from the warning, it says, like, when you cry out to me, I will not be there to answer you. What he meant is, like, hey, guys, once you start down this path, there is no reset button. There is no reset button. You start down this path, you've taken this path. I'm not going to be the God who delivers you all the time and you trust in a king. you got a choice to make. God's not willing to share authority with anyone. And I'm going to give you a hint, including you. Um, ver- observation number eight, and this is the good news. God can still work out his will through people's dumb choices. Um, because even though the people sinned when they chose this king, that didn't stop God from working out his plan in them and through them. He used the monarchy eventually to bring about King David, one of the greatest kings, and King Solomon and other great leaders. He, he used this mistake that he made to keep working his plan. And he did it in spite of their sin. Not, not, not through their sin, but in spite of their sin. He kept working his plan. And eventually, who comes from the line of David? Eventually, the Messiah, Jesus, would come from David. And so his plan didn't get thrown to the side because they sinned. He said, I, I, I can still work my plan out in spite of our sin. So God's plan wasn't ruined by the people's disobedience. So we're going to take those eight observations that we just made about this story, and now we're just going to see, do they still apply in our life today? Can we take each one of those things and see if it still works out today in our lives? Can we do that together? You still with me? Okay. So what do we make of this today? All right, here's the applications. Let's, let's the comparisons for today. Let's start there. Listen, belonging or trusting God, belonging to or trusting God still makes you different today, doesn't it? When you trust God, you, you live a different life than the world around you, whether it's your sexual ethics, whether it's your belief in miracles, or where you get your value from. Like, we live differently than the world. And, and I just want to tell you that did you know that that's on purpose, Did you know that God designed it that way intentionally? It's not an accident. It's not like he's thinking, oh, my gosh, they're following me, but look how different they are. Oh, you know, I'm stressed out for them. No, he he actually designed for your life to look differently than the world. It's intentional, this distinction. We are supposed to be a contrast community. We're supposed to be a contrast culture in this greater culture that we're living in today. God designed it for us to stick out, not to blend in. The Bible teaches that that the direction of humanity, the direction of culture in general, left unchecked, is just heading in the wrong direction. It is destructively self-centered. I think that's what sinful nature is. We're destructively self-centered. And listen, this world, our culture is just heading in that direction. And God says, I need my people to be different, to show that there is a different way to live. And so your distinctiveness is designed. 
And God needs his people to show a different way, a different way to live, a different way to exist. It's not an accident that that following God makes you different than the world. I mean, when you think about it, we're, we're supposed to be holy people because we have a holy God. Holy literally means set apart, set apart for God. That, that's, that's actually on purpose. We're supposed to reflect God in this world, not just reflect the world back to itself. It has a design. How many of you guys are football fans? How many of you actually like watch some NFL football? Yeah? Okay. I know Jared does for sure. Okay, you do too. Looks like so two of you will understand this. But I don't know. You know, there's a little secret about football that not a lot of people know of. Have you ever heard of the oven mitt guys? You know what that is? You know the oven mitt guys? Every, say, no, he doesn't bake. Yeah, but that's a good, good idea. Every single game, there's an oven mitt guy on the sidelines. And, and, and I want to show him to you. Um, I've got a picture of him right there. That's actually him, like with the orange. And every single game, he's there. He's actually the most important person on the field if you're watching the football game on television. You know what he decides? He decides when things are live and when they go to commercial, and he lets everybody know. He, he does. And, and listen, when he goes like this, that means it's commercial time. We are not live. Do not start the ball. Do not hike the ball. Do not do anything. And, and listen, he's, he's always there. And he's not there wearing those mitts because he thinks he looks cute in them. Or, or he likes oven mitts or he likes the color orange. Why does he have these ridiculous-looking mitts on his hand? He stands out. So everybody could see him. So the, they, they could see, oh, he's the one telling us when to play and when to not. Listen, God puts that kind of responsibility on the church to be the markers in culture to say, no, don't do that. Yes, do that. God gives us that responsibility as a contrast community to stick out from the world so we can point to God. So listen, being different Belonging to God does make you different, but please know that's from design. My, my next point that we're going to compare is uh, being different in this world is, is not always easy. And I think you already know. I don't, I don't even know if I have to talk about that too much, but, it, you know, it's just hard to constantly be a part of this contrast community where we are different from the world. And just because it's intentional and just because it's good and God designed it that we're different doesn't mean that it's easy. It, it wasn't for the people back then, obviously, because they started kicking that system that made them different to the side and just wanted to be like the world. I mean, it, it wasn't easy for them. It's not easy for us. It is easier for us to just say, you know what, I'm just going to think like the world on this one. I'm not going to bring up anything. I'm not going to say, yeah, I don't really feel that way or God doesn't say that. Or that's wrong. Lord forbid you ever say that's wrong in public, right? Or that's right. Um, it's just so much easier to go along to get along, right? Listen, humans are starved biologically. I mean, I mean, literally, biologically, we're wired to hunt for affirmation, for acceptance, for attention. And listen, when you're part of a contrast community, when you're part of following God, the world doesn't give you affirmation and attention and, and acceptance. It doesn't do that for you, but you need it. You need it as a person. You're designed to need it, and you need to be finding that through the Lord. If you're really a part of this contrast community, you've got to do some of those things that Mike hopefully will talk to you about in those spiritual disciplines. You've got to spend time with God. You've got to let him give you that love. 
that the world is not showing you. You've got to let him give you that acceptance that the world won't give you. You've got to spend time with him. You've got to find your value in him and in his word. Man, if you're not in a discipleship relationship, you need to get in one because those center around plugging in your value into God, not into how others are thinking about you. Listen, if you're going to live in a contrast community, you've got to be plugged in. You've got to be plugged into the one who can give you value, the acceptance, the love that the world is never going to offer you. And I think that's what was so hard for the people of Israel. They just weren't feeling the love, whatever. And the reality is they weren't allowing God to fill that need in them either because they didn't have a trust relationship with him. They didn't have intimacy with him. They didn't even know how to approach him the right way, as you heard last week. So, you know, it's hard being different than the world. So you've got to make sure you're plugged in and, and getting your value from the Lord. You, you know, um, we were just talking about this, Jared. Like, uh, it was hard to be a Vasquez. I'm a, you know, my last name is Vasquez. It was hard to be a Vasquez in the 80s in Houston where I grew up um, because, you know, I was from Argentina. And in, in Houston, there were, you know, just like a large Anglo population, a large Mexican population, a lot of, uh, like, African-American population, but also you know, a small Vietnamese population, but Argentines, like where I was from, no one was from there. And I remember sitting in, a, in a, like third grade or something like that, and my teacher says, I want, it was like January, right? They say, we just came back from break, from Christmas break, and they're like, I want you to write down, it was like one of those uh, creative writing assignments, write down a story about the meal you ate for Christmas. And you know, I got to tell you, like, turkey is not that popular in Argentina. We don't eat turkey. We don't even roast big hams. I mean, you know what my Christmas meal was that year? Octopus. Octopus, like, you know, boiled octopus put in with, like, some tomato sauce on white rice. It's amazing. Like, it is awesome. Try it. If you don't like it. I mean, I got roots from Spain. That's where they eat tons of octopus. So I'm there at school, and they're asking me, well, what did you eat? Write a story about it. I got sent to detention. Because my teacher told me that I was lying. I said, no, I, I, I eat octopus for, you know, for Christmas. She's like, stop lying. No one eats octopus. And I was like, no, I promise. Like, we eat octopus. She's like, that's not even a thing that you could buy here. And I was, like, amazed at how, how much it was costing me to be different because I didn't know I was that different. Listen, if you need the wake-up call, you got it. You're different than the world if you follow Jesus. And it will cost you something. But you know what else? My parents... All the love and acceptance I missed out on school for eating octopus, listen, my parents made up for. They taught me to be proud of Vasquez. They said, son, you're different. That's, that's your story. It's okay. Let me tell you why you're okay. And listen, that's what you need to be doing with the Lord. You, you need to realize you're going to be different and that it's hard, but you need the Lord to just sing over you and preach to you and say, I love you, though. You're mine. You're not this world. And what this world can offer you, I can give you so much more. Being different is hard, but, man, you've got to get plugged in in order to, to make it. Okay, so next point. Let's see if it's still valid today. Having to trust God all the time, it's still hard. And, and truth is, having to trust anyone all the time is hard. And we, we have a strong self-determination streak, don't we? We want to be the shot callers in our life. We, we want to be the one that decides direction, decisions, um, values. But again, just like the people of Israel, if we can't directly be in charge, we at least want something that's kind of predictable 
to trust. You know, something that's just not going to pull any surprises on us. And unfortunately, that's not God. God is not as predictable as we like. Because listen, when you, when you got something predictable, again, you, you figure out how to adjust to what it's going to do and how to kind of game the system so you can still have a little bit of control in your life. But God is just not that predictable. And it's funny because he's always faithful, right? Always faithful. He's always reliable. He always tells the truth. He's always truth to himself, but he is not predictable. Um, when my wife and I lived in Texas, that's where we met. I was at seminary, um, and God called us to serve him elsewhere. We went to Poland. Um, we sold everything that we had, paid off our debt. Everything that we fit, had fit into six suitcases, and, um, and we went to go live in a country where we didn't know the language and didn't know anybody there, and, um, and yeah, it was, it was not, not that predictable that I thought I would be there, and it was crazy. You know, uh, we, we took like a 75% pay cut to do it, and, and that's just weird, right, to think about when you're young and married, that's the time to earn your money before the kids come. I mean, we sold everything, took the pay cut. My wife was a teacher at a school just like this. She was teacher of the year. She had just one teacher of the year. I was a pastor of the church. I had just one pastor of the year, according to the church. I was the only pastor. But, you know, things were going well. We thought there was a trajectory to our life, and all of a sudden God says, no, let's go to a place that you've never been to before. You don't know the language. You've never lived in snow. And it was kind of crazy. But you know what I didn't know? Everything that I learned there, living there, prepared me for what I'm doing right now. You see, God is not spastic in his unpredictability. He's not just having fun with us. He's not looking at you and your life and say, all right, well, I hope you like pierogies because I'm going to move you. Or, yeah, I hope you like the, the heat because you're going to Saudi Arabia. He's not just randomly messing with us, being predictable, uh, unpredictable. He, he, he just has all the information. And we don't. The reason why we think he's predict unpredictable is because he's got all the info and we don't. And everything I experienced in those three and a half years in Poland prepared me exactly for what I'm doing right now. And I'm thankful for that. Let me give you the next one. Trusting God is still better than trusting anybody else. That, that's still the case today. As unpredictable, and, and maybe unpredictable is not a good word. Maybe we could just say adventurous. As adventurous as it can be, following and trusting God, he is still better than any of the alternatives. All other things we trust in, they fail us, including ourselves, our instincts, our best judgments, they fail us. God calls it sin when we trust anything other than him. When we choose our way instead of his way, if you know your three circles, sin is choosing our way, right? God calls it sin when we choose to trust anything but him. And you heard it in the warning, what a king would do. You heard it in the warning that, that this sin was going to have consequences. And we think we can chum up with sin a little bit or chum up with doing things our own way and, and that we can handle it. Like, I can be in charge and things still be okay in my life. And, and, and it's just a lie that we tell ourselves, right? 
Because when we don't trust him, when we say, look, I'd rather trust my own instinct or my own judgment in this situation, we are sinning and we think that that sin won't have consequences. But it always does. It always does. It reminds me of that quote um, about sin being a trap that says sin will take you further than you want to go. It'll keep you longer than you want to stay and cost you more than you can afford to pay. It always happens. Listen, trusting God is our, our best hope because he has all the info and all the power to actually make his plan work out for us. And nothing else has all the info and all the power. So it's still, still better to trust God than anything else. Because, listen, when we put our hands on certain situations in our life, if you've got something going on with your marriage right now, with your work, with your future, I, I, I don't know. But when we put our hands on it and say, Lord, I'm, I'm tired of having to trust you with this. I'm going to do things my own way. We, we become kind of like the kings and queens of unintended consequences. We actually can do a lot more damage than good. I got um, this. Uh, you guys ever watch Mr. Bean? Oh, I love Mr. Bean. Can you show this picture? So you see the movie where he's like hanging out with Whistler's mother. Like this is the name of the painting there, a very famous painting. And he's looking at it very closely. Guess what he does to the painting? Do you remember anything about this? Yeah, he kind of sneezes on it. And so he starts to kind of clean it up a little bit. And, and he's actually thinking he's doing a good job. But this next picture shows you he's not, oh, he's actually made it worse than it started. But don't worry, he fixes it. This is what, how he fixes it at the end. <laughs> it's kind of funny, right? You're thinking... Okay, okay. Well, that's Mr. Bean. Mr. Bean's an idiot. Like, we know how it goes. That doesn't really happen in real life. Well, remember this? This is a 200-year fresco that was damaged, started the restoration process. <laughs> Look how it turned out. This is a real story. A real artist did that. Guys, um, this is kind of funny or whatever, but this is what starts happening to us when we start trusting our own judgment over God. Like whether it's our marriage, whether it's something at work, whether it's our, our ethical situation that we're dealing with, whether it's a past issue that we're trying to deal with. Listen, it starts out like that, and then we start thinking, well, I can handle it. I can make the right decisions. I can navigate my own way through this, and it ends up looking like this. That still happens today to all of us. So you got to be careful because we're the kind of people... Next point, people, we, we still give up our freedoms for things that we think will make us secure. We still will, will give up the, the healing and the love and, and, and the guidance that God wants to offer for things that we think will work out better for us. And listen, I, I'm sorry, there are kids in the room, so I normally don't say this in front of my kids, but are we stupid? I mean, why do we keep doing that? And I actually don't think that we're stupid. I, I think that what, what we are is terribly flawed, and one of our biggest flaws is kind of confusing what actually makes us secure with what we are familiar with. You see, you're familiar with your own thought processes. You're familiar with how you handle things. There's a particular way you've always done things. You're familiar with how the world values things because the world is around you all the time, and sometimes we'll just trust that more, not because it's better, but just because it's familiar. But I want to give you the the just entire warning that it, you don't default to the familiar 
and not trust God in whatever it is that you're going through today. It never works out quite like you think. Are you having issues in your relationships or at work? Trust God. Don't do things you want to do. Are you having an issue trusting God with your future? Trust me, it's better than trusting yourself with your future. Um, don't wrestle away control from God and do things your own way just because you're used to your own way. It doesn't really work out. Okay, almost there. We're landing the plane. God still is willing to let people screw up. I just want to put that out there. He is still willing to do that today. Um, and he is not going to force you to obey him. He's not going to force you to trust him. And listen, I really wish that wasn't the case. I, I wish that when we were born again as Christians, when we became this new creation, that God would just eliminate any temptation from our life or any desire to go back to sin. But, but that's not how it works. Uh, one of the key ingredients for our growth, for our trust in him, is actually having to choose to trust him, to choose to obey him. And if we, if we didn't have the choice, it wouldn't really be trust, right? And we wouldn't grow if it was forced obedience. So, you, you know, God allows us to do our own thing sometimes. You know, I remember back in Houston, my dad, this wasn't a part of his sense of humor. This is actually a good dad moment for him. But I remember being like, I don't know, I was six years old or something like that. And I was, uh, my dad had just finished cutting the lawn and he brought in the, the lawnmower straight in from the outside, just turned it off, cut it out in the garage. And I was standing next to it. And my dad says, Sam, I don't touch it. Why? It's hot. Engine's been running. It, it wasn't a fancy one. It didn't have all the covers. It was just a straight motor right there, right? And, you know, I did that thing that all kids do, like just stood next to it like that and my kids do this to this day too just kind of standing next to it and, and he's like tells me again Seba do not touch that it is hot it will burn you why son trust me but I did my thing right I'm standing there with my hand doing that little dance like waiting for him to turn and what does my dad do you know what he does my dad looks at me he just turns sideways and starts cleaning his little tool. Doesn't even look at me. And what did I do? Oh, yeah. Did you think he, he knew I was going to do that? Oh, he knew. Now, did he let me do that because I, he's like a bad parent? That's, you know, should we be calling CPS on him and saying, hey, you know, you're abusing your child? No. Why did he do that? Why did he let me touch it? Yeah. Learn two things. Don't ever touch a lawnmower that's just been turned off. The second thing, trust your dad. The only way I was going to learn those lessons is by me touching it. And listen, there are times God says, don't do that. He sends someone into your life, says, don't do that. He sends a preacher that you don't know into your church to say, don't do that. But he's going to let you do it if you're determined to do it. So you'll learn to trust him. And you'll learn that sin doesn't work out the way we always plan. It is not reliable. But, you know, at the same time... Just like he will let us do it, he will not, he will not share his authority with anyone. He still doesn't do that today. He won't let you have it both ways. Don't get it confused. God will not let you trust. He will not let you trust him. He will not let you play him. You cannot play God in that way. 
and say, you're my God, but I'm still in charge. He won't let you do that. You can't think that he and you are in charge. And you can't expect the blessings and the peace of God and the security of God and all the things that come from growing in him to come while you're trusting in yourself. It doesn't happen. You'll feel his conviction. You'll feel his discipline and even the consequences of your sin if you trust anything other than him. And it's for your own good. It's for your own growth so that you'll learn to trust him. But listen, last thing, this is the encouragement we have. God can still bring good from our bad decisions and our bad choices. Even after all that we've just talked about, God knows what he's working with. He knows all this way that we are. He knew how the Israelites were, how they had this back to Egypt mentality. He knows that we tend to trust ourselves more and the world more. And he knows that. And and, and listen, even though he lets us make these bad choices, even though he lets us feel his discipline, he still can work out his will in our life. We've never eliminated ourselves from his plan. Just like he brought about David and Solomon and eventually Jesus through the Israelites, bad choices, he can bring out good things even through ours. So listen, if you've you've gone through a season where you have not been trusting God, do not lose hope. Just repent. Start trusting him today. He could still work out great things in your life. And listen, that's the difference between the new covenant and the old covenant. You know, the, the people back then, God says, if you call out to me, I'm not going to answer you. But in our covenant, in our covenant with Jesus, we are his children. We'll always be his children, whether we trust him or not. He will always have us under his hand. And yes, he will discipline us, but yes, he could still work out his plan. I love uh, Tony Evans, one of my favorite preachers. He always said, God knows how to work in the dark. And he knows how to work when we've shut out the lights of our faith. And, and he's not blind. He knows how to work out what he wants to do, even when we're sinful, even when we're faithless. I mean, what a great verse, 2 Timothy 2.13. It says, like, even if we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny his own love, who he is. He cannot deny himself. He hasn't left you. Listen, if you're you're a Christian here and you just haven't been trusting God, God hasn't given up on you. Just start trusting him again. And maybe you're here and you've never trusted God for the first time. And let me tell you, you, there's no mistake you could have made to this point of life that has eliminated you from starting a relationship with God. He can work out his plan. You know, just look inside of our network if you don't believe that. Guys, one of our pastors was in jail for gang activity when he found Jesus. He's pastoring one of our churches. One of our other pastors was a preacher who wasn't even a Christian. Imagine the hypocrisy of that. He was preaching in churches but wasn't even a Christian when he found Jesus. One of our other pastors was in a men's home before he started his church. I mean, God knows how to work in the dark. He knows how to work with imperfect people who have trouble trusting him if we will just put those things aside and say, God, no more kings. I'll choose you. He knows how to do that. So let me give you three things uh, to do, and I'm not going to talk about them, so you're like, yes, we're over. Um, 
Three things to do. Number one, you need to embrace sticking out. Because um, it's by design. You got to be, start being okay with being different than this world and being that contrast community. The second thing you need to do is you need to remember what God freed you from. You need to remember your Egypt, that God rescued you from yourself. So don't put yourself back into the equation trying to take charge of your own life. And the third thing is you need to trust God alone to lead you. So listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray with you for you to be able to do these things. And then maybe um, you could just spend some time around your table. I don't know. We've gone a little bit long. But maybe you could just say, share with each other, out of those three things, these are what's really easy for me. This one's the easiest for me to do. This one's the hardest for me to do. Maybe you could share that with each other um, as we end. Let me pray with you. Father God, thank you for a lesson that we've had um, through this Old Testament passage that still nails exactly how we are today. We are just like the people of Israel, God. Um, even though you've rescued us from our sin, from ourselves, from our own choices, Lord, and you've proven yourself trustworthy over and over again, there are still times that, like the scripture says, like a, like a dog that returns to its vomit, Lord. We just, we just go back to the old life of being in charge, thinking that will work out better for us if I'm in charge in this situation. You've nailed it, Lord. You know exactly how we are. Help us to listen. But God, just because you know how we are, I want to thank you for not quitting on us and for inviting us over and over again that now is the moment to trust you. That it, we, we might not have done it the last few months, weeks, even maybe years, but right now we can start trusting you again. And you could still work out your will in our life. Thank you for that, God. And um, Lord, teach us to trust you. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.